Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. There's one particular passage of Shakespeare that is very well known uh, to those who might be a younger part of Gen X or an older millennial, and that is the monologue that Juliet gives as she begins to ponder Romeo. You know the one, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name, if thou wilt be but sworn my love, and I will no longer be a Capulet. What's in a name? That which is called a rose by any other name would still smell as sweet. If you were of the right generation and were in a drama class in high school, you saw just about every uh, girl in your class do her best Claire Danes impersonation. Because this was the famous line from the, the remake of Romeo and Juliet with Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio. And the idea behind the line is this. You can change something's name and it doesn't change what it is. And this is true in churches. I mean, we have city groups here at City Church, but other churches call them small groups. And other churches call them community groups. But I'll let you in on a secret. They're all the same thing. They're all the same thing. Some churches have Sunday school. Other churches call it Bible hour. Other churches call it Christian education. Guess what? Same thing. It's all, it's all just kind of the, the same thing. And the reason why, like, every church has these sort of things, these sort of small groups or Christian education or whatever you want to call them, is because all churches understand this simple truth, that our lives are meant to be moving in the direction of Jesus, that we are meant to be growing, we are meant to be forming ourselves into thoughtful, loving Christians, This whole idea is what the Bible uses the language of, of is being a disciple of Jesus. And our goal as Christians is not just to accept and receive the good news of Jesus' forgiveness. Okay, good. Jesus did that for me. I, I no longer have to worry about the sin stuff. Uh, that's forgiven. So I'm just going to move on and do whatever else I want with my life. No, we need to be formed and conformed to his image in every area of our lives. Now, let me be honest. I know most of you. I know that for almost zero of you, the idea that Christians should grow as Christians is not a shocking idea. It's not. Like, that's like kind of basic Christianity. If you've been a Christian for more than 10 minutes, you probably get that. And if you haven't, you probably intuitively know it anyway. But here's the catch. Here's the catch with this. The way that Jesus wants to form us is deeper and more difficult than we want to admit. We would all say that, yes, Jesus wants to grow us. Yes, Jesus wants to change us. But the depth and level to which he wants to do that is something we shy away from. Jesus' intent is to change us all the way down to the level of our desires, down to not just the things that we do, but the things that we love, the things that our hearts are inclined to. See, Jesus isn't after morally good people. He's not trying to turn us into the rule followers. What Jesus is after is our heart. 
And as we open up this morning, as we look at Mark chapter 10, the next chapter that we're looking at, Jesus is in the final leg of his journey towards Jerusalem. It's almost, he's almost there. He's making his way across the Jordan and up through Jericho. And as he's making this, he's going to tell us and the people around him what it means to really follow Jesus. So if you're able this morning, I'd love for you to stand. I'm going to be reading John, or Mark chapter 10. The words will be on the screen behind me, or you can follow along in your Bible or on your phone. But here, Mark chapter 10. And he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And his disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And he was setting out on a journey. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to him, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that Jesus of, that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man to him saying, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. City Church is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So first on this journey, Jesus gets asked in a, a question about divorce. The Pharisees show up and they ask for his hottest take on what is grounds for divorce. 
Now, there's a lot going on with this question. First of all, it was a theological question. It was a question that divided the other rabbis of Jesus' day. Some people said that the only grounds for divorce were abuse and adultery. And that was what some of the rabbis taught. Other rabbis taught that there were a lot of reasons for a divorce. If your wife cooked you a bad meal, divorce. If you, literally one of the rabbis, and this is written down, said that if you can find a prettier wife, you can divorce the old one. This is sort of beyond anything goes. This was a hot topic in Jesus' time. And so they come to him and they say, okay, Jesus, what's your take? Where are you at on this? But, but it's not just that this is a theological hot take. There's something else going on. Mark describes exactly where Jesus is when he is asked this question. And he's in the area of Judea that is across the Jordan River. Now for us, we just go, okay, neat. Thanks for the geography note, Mark. But this is the exact same place where Herod Antipas was the ruler. And Herod, somewhat famously, had divorced his wife and his sister-in-law had divorced his brother and they got married. And John the Baptist had said, hey, by the way, Herod, that's wrong. And it did not go well for John. Um, he lost his head over it. And so the Pharisees not, get to, not just get to ask Jesus a hot take theological question here, but they're asking him to put himself in danger by answering this question. Because if he answers it in a way that Herod doesn't like, Herod might be coming after him. But Jesus, in the way that Jesus always seems to be able to do, cuts right through the Pharisees' sort of shenanigans. He, he says, look, you're getting your idea of divorce from the wrong part of the Bible. You don't read a manual on crash landings to learn how to fly a plane. You don't learn about the tactics of war by reading a book on how to retreat. And you don't learn a theology of marriage from the chapter in Deuteronomy 24 about the provisions for divorce. Jesus says, no, 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 let's go back. Go back further in your scrolls. Go back further in the Torah to the way that God created and designed marriage all the way back in the garden. Jesus shows all of his followers that the Christian ethics of marriage are deeper than a list of reasons that divorce is okay or not. There is more going on than just that. It is a bigger and beautiful thing. Marriage was created by God at the very beginning and is a sacred union, not just between a man and a woman, but it's something where God is involved too. God blesses marriages and is actively participating in them. The only metaphor that we have that sort of encapsulates this is actually communion. The way that God is present in communion, the way that God through his grace and through his Holy Spirit is present in communion is the way that God binds a husband and a wife together. And Jesus says, so don't just like grab the chapter that's the emergency valve and try to build your theology of marriage off of that. Rather, look at what God intended it to be. It's much deeper. It's much more beautiful. And the, what, the way that Jesus presents it, the way that Jesus lays this out, has implications for us, whether or not we are married. 
First of all, Jesus sees the husbands and wives as partners. This would have been radical in Jesus' time. The way that Jesus said, hey, if a husband commits adultery, he's committing against the wife. And if a wife commits adultery, she's committing it against the husband. Those parallel statements that there is responsibility on both the part of the husband and the wife would have been radical for the people around Jesus. This was a time when women were seen as slightly more important than property. And yet Jesus gives them dignity and agency in their marriages. He is dignifying women and acknowledging that they are important and partners in marriage. But it also comes with a warning. Because they are bound together by the Holy Spirit, because as the Bible says, the two become one flesh, anyone who disrupts a marriage, who inserts themselves in between a husband and wife, is not just harming that couple, but they're doing violence to the creation of God. God has joined the man and woman together. And anyone who gets in the way of that is tearing apart what God has done. God's standard for marital fidelity are incredibly, even uncomfortably high. Jesus is telling us that the cost of discipleship is reimagining our thinking on marriage and singleness. For those who are married, it's the cost of forgoing all others in order to love the one who God has knitted you together with. And for those who are single, the cost is radical trust in what God is calling you to, even when you don't fully understand why it's happening. But Jesus moves on from the cost of discipleship and marriage to what it means for children. People were bringing their children to Jesus. And the disciples, they got a little bit upset. The disciples tried to say, this is a waste of time. Stop bringing your kids to Jesus. And they rebuked the parents of these kids. And Jesus gets indignant. That's the word that Mark uses here. When people, when the disciples tried to stop people from bringing their children to Jesus, Jesus got indignant. Why? He didn't just suffer the little children to come to him. He welcomed them. In fact, last week in Mark 9, we saw that Jesus, as he was talking to them about about the way that the kingdom of God works, went out and grabbed a child and put that child in his arms as he was teaching about that. And not only does Jesus say that they are welcome in his arms, he blesses them. And not only does he bless them, he says that the kingdom of God belongs to them. Now think about that. These are children that are having to be brought to Jesus, not like, you know, some 13-year-old who's bringing himself. These are kids that are carried to Jesus. And Jesus says, to these kids belongs the kingdom of God. And then he turns and looks at everyone else around them and says, and you know what? You would do well to be more like these children if you want to understand the kingdom of God. Children, babies especially, cannot truly earn anything. They can't. They, they just don't have the faculties. They, they can cry. They can eat. They can fill their diapers. That, that's most of what a baby has going on. Now, they're cute. They're lovely. We love them. But they can't earn anything. We don't put expectations on their behavior. Like, it's, 
It's a child. It can't hold its bladder. It just, that's why we have diapers. There's no expectations. Little children and babies don't earn wages. Everything is a gift to them. Everything that they get is a gift. And the deep and radical call for us that Jesus is asking us to follow is to receive everything as a gift. God's saving work, gift. God's work in changing us and growing us, gift. God's blessing in any and every area of our lives is a gift. All of it is a gift to be received and not a wage to be earned. The kingdom of God is one of free blessing. It's, it's, it's the way that new parents dote over a child. A new parent gives all of the energy they can and all of the attention they can to their new child. And so does God with us. So does God with us. Now, I would be a bad Presbyterian if I didn't stop for a second here and point out how significant it is that Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God belongs to children and that children belong to the kingdom of God. These are children, again, who are brought to Jesus, not ones who come of their own accord. And yet Jesus calls them citizens of his kingdom. And if they are citizens of that kingdom, it would make sense to give them the sign and symbol of citizenship in that kingdom, which is baptism. Okay. Aside on that done, and I'd love to talk with you more about that later, but this text should also shape the way that you and I think about children in church. This week, early in the week, it was on Monday, a tweet sort of went viral where somebody was complaining about people bringing babies into church. And they said it was disrespectful because, and they listed off all of these reasons. Now, I, I'm here to tell you that that tweet was uh, appropriately dunked on by near the, nearly everybody. The entirety of Christian Twitter came together. The Reformed folks and the Wesleyans and even the traditional Catholics got in on the mix and told this guy, you are so in the wrong, it's wild. And that's because it was. Let me say it clearly right now. Bring your crying babies to church. If your children are crying during the sermon, I don't care. If your children are crying during the sermon, no one else around you cares. The cries of children are the music of the blessing of God on a church. Bring your children and your crying babies, all of them, to church. And if they're too young to, in the, they're not ready for nursery, strap them on and bring them in here. And if they can't get calm and you feel weird about it, walk up here and hand them to me. I don't use my hands for anything but doing this. <laughs> Bring them. The kingdom of God isn't just for adults that are over some magical age. The kingdom of God is for adults and children. For those who think that they know how to behave and those who don't yet even have the faculties to behave. Crying children are a blessing to the church. So keep them coming. Jesus taught about marriage. He taught about children. And he's talking about these people who are vulnerable categories, 
who were vulnerable and thought of as less in the society. But then Jesus is confronted with somebody who's very different. A rich young moralist approaches Jesus. He falls at Jesus' feet. He, he gasses him up. He gives him compliments and says, good teacher, rabbi, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus has an aside comment about the nature of goodness. And then he reminds this man of the Ten Commandments, specifically the, the second half of the Ten Commandments, the moral law. And the man replies to Jesus, oh, I've, I've done that. And not only have I done that, but I've done that since I was a kid. Now, it's easy for us to sort of scoff at that and be like, but did you? Really? You've kept them all, all the, the whole time? But, but let's not forget the religion that Jesus was most often confronting in the Gospels was a Judaism that was obsessed with external moral actions. External moral actions were the order of the day. Just keep the commandments in your actions. It's the reason why Paul, when he was talking about his credentials as a Jew, it's, he said that according to the law, I was blameless. Does that mean that Paul and this rich young ruler had never sinned? No, but they had kept all of the external commandments. And what's interesting is how Jesus responds. If somebody came to us and said this, we would probably go into like full SWAT mode, right? We, we, would, we would go, no, no, no way, and sort of SWAT that away. But Jesus looks at this man, this man who says he has kept all of the commandments since he was a child. He looks at him and he loves him. He loves him so much that he won't allow his religious doing to be skin deep. He won't allow his morality to just be surface and go unchecked. So Jesus says to him, okay, one more thing. What I want you to do is go and sell everything you own and give that money to the poor and then come and follow me. And this man walks away sad. And the Bible gives us insight into why. Because he had a lot of stuff. He had a lot of stuff. Jesus uses this as an example of the literal cost of discipleship. Disciple just, discipleship doesn't just affect the way that we are married or single. It doesn't just affect the way that we treat children. True discipleship reaches all the way into our bank account. And Jesus is blunt. It is incredibly difficult, if not impossible, for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. And then Jesus uses the example of the biggest animal that was there in Palestine, trying to fit through the smallest hole any of these people could imagine. This was not some sort of idea about some gate, or not sort of some idea that Jesus was saying, it must have been really hard. No, Jesus said, a camel going through the eye of a needle. And the disciples understood it because their question to follow up was, well, then, then who can be, that's impossible. Then nobody, then nobody would get into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus. What are you talking about? Nobody would be able to do this. And Jesus says, exactly, now you're getting it. It's impossible. It's impossible for us 
to, to live up to what God wants us to. It's impossible for us to, to live our lives in that way. But Jesus specifically pegs this to the idea of wealth. Why is it so impossible for the wealthy, for people with money to enter the kingdom of God? It's because money makes us self-reliant and secure. Money gives us power and agency. The false illusions that money gives us all run counter to the kingdom of God. Beloved, you can't put your hope in your financial plans and Jesus at the same time. You can't love God and money. Your love of God will kill your love of money or your love of money will kill your love of God. There are no two ways about it. And Jesus sees this in this man. Jesus sees this and even though he loves him, this man walks away. Well, Peter does Peter things and says, oh, what, what about us, Jesus? We left houses and families. We gave it all up to follow you. What do we get? And Jesus says, oh, oh, here's the good news. You've left your families and I'm gonna give you a new and bigger family. It's gonna be the church family. You're gonna have all sorts of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, and it's gonna be great. And there'll be persecutions. Jesus does not try to like oversell this at all. Jesus is brutally honest. Yes, you've left your families behind. You found a new family in the people of God and you're gonna, that's great. And there's gonna be persecutions. Your life is going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. Jesus is not pulling his punches. The way of Jesus is not easy. The way of being formed into his image is not smooth sailing. The people who have success in this life might not be so successful in the life that is to come. Those who are seen as nothing in this life might be wildly successful in the kingdom of God. The kingdom doesn't operate on the same principles that our world does. And we see that vividly in Jesus because as he leaves and continues on the road, what does he tell his disciples is about to happen? He's vivid in his description of what his torture and crucifixion is going to be. He says, they're going to spit on me. They're going to flog me. They're going to, and he continues right on through this list. He's not going to Jerusalem to kill the Romans. He's going to Jerusalem to be killed by the Romans. But the disciples... They don't have an imagination that can grasp this. Their imagination says that they can just see the world of power around them. And so James and John, immediately upon hearing Jesus say that he is going to Jerusalem and he's going to die, decide that this is probably the best time for ask for, to ask for good seats in the kingdom. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, I know you said you're going you're gonna to die, um, but... When you come into your glory, can one of us sit on the right and one of us sit on your left? Can we like be second and third position? The disciples continue to not get it. And Jesus sort of knows this and he asks them, are you sure? Are you, are you sure that's what you want? Are you, you want to follow me like this? And the disciples, oh yes, we totally will. Yes, we'll, we're going to drink, drink the cup that you drink and be baptized with the baptism with which you are baptized. Having to say that twice as we read through that, was difficult. And Jesus says, okay, fine, you, you will. You'll get all of that. 
But as far as the seats on the right hand, that's not my job to make that appointment. That's the role of the Father and the Holy Spirit. But Jesus uses this as an opportunity to show that their foolhardy plans absolutely run in contrast to what's really happening in the kingdom of God, what leadership in the kingdom of God is like. Leaders in the kingdom of God must be servants. The exercise of leadership in the church must always be service to others. And Jesus is saying not only that this is what he expects of his people, but this is what he himself is going to experience. Jesus draws from and and alludes to Isaiah 53 here, the story and the passage that we call the suffering servant passage. That's what Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like. The ethics of the kingdom of heaven are completely upside down. Our sin has corrupted our minds so much that, that these ethics of the kingdom of heaven don't only feel unintuitive, they feel wrong. But here's what Jesus says. The first are last and the last first. Here's what Jesus says. The way to success is through humility. The way of growth is through dying to yourself. The heart that is set on the kingdom of God looks awfully different to everything else that's going on in our world around us. And Mark gives us a vivid picture of that with the last story, the story of blind Bartimaeus. He's a beggar and he's there in Jericho and he hears that Jesus is coming. He don't know, doesn't know where he is, but he is just calling out, son of David, have mercy on me. And the entire crowd is just telling him to shut up and just like, chill out, guy. But Bartimaeus is an example that we get to see of the kingdom of God in action. He has nothing and is fully reliant on the mercy and grace of Jesus, just like a child. Bartimaeus has nothing to give. Bartimaeus has no sort of wealth or power to bring to the table. All he has is his blindness and his desire to see and hear from Jesus. And so Jesus calls him, and then Jesus heals him. And when Jesus calls to Bartimaeus, the one thing that he's got, it seems the one thing that he's got going for him is he's got a cloak, and even that Bartimaeus leaves behind. The rich young ruler couldn't leave behind all of his stuff. Blind Bartimaeus leaves behind even his cloak. It's interesting that that Bartimaeus' name is given uh, three times in this passage, and it's given in both its Greek form and its Aramaic form. And the reason why scholars think that, that his name is so emphasized, because often we don't in any other healing in Mark know the name of the person healed. So why does Mark kind of stumble over himself to tell us Bartimaeus' name? And many scholars think it's because Bartimaeus would have been a known entity to the church in Rome that somehow Bartimaeus became uh, known for his Christianity and maybe even went on to live in Rome. He followed Jesus for the rest of his life and was known as a follower of Jesus. The kingdom of God is a place where the beggars are the celebrities, where they're the one whose names are recorded for us. Isn't it so fascinating that we don't know the name of the rich young ruler, but we know the name of the prostitutes in the Gospels? 
Isn't it funny that we know the name of so many of the sinners in the Bible, but so many of these rulers are just mentioned as something else. The kingdom of God operates in a way that is even more beautiful than you can I can imagine because there's another illusion in this story of Bartimaeus. Because when David, the son, the, the grandfather of Jesus, when he was taking Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, when he is establishing that, one of the first things he does as he goes to Jerusalem is he expels all of the blind men out of Jerusalem. He wants to make it, he wants to make it clean and he wants to get all of the blind folks out of Jerusalem. And now years later, Jesus, who is called by a blind man, the son of David, doesn't kick all of the blind people out of Jerusalem, but rather heals them and brings them with him. Because what does Bartimaeus do in this passage? Jesus says, go wherever you want. And Bartimaeus says, I'm going with you. And this formerly blind man marches with Jesus into Jerusalem. The kingdom of God is full of unexpected beauty and unexplained redemption. Beloved, May the Holy Spirit work in us to leave all that we have to follow Jesus. May he give us a more beautiful vision for our marriages and our singleness. May he teach us to see our children as a blessed part of God's kingdom. May he kill the idolatry that comes with money and success. And may we walk in the way of loving service to everyone we meet, just like Jesus did just as Jesus did as the suffering servant. Let's pray.